Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Luke's English Podcast. Now, we know that regularly listening to Luke's English Podcast or regularly listening to any uh, audio like this will definitely help you to learn English. But you'll improve even faster if you combine that with other types of study, particularly by talking to qualified native English speakers. Okay, and you can now do that online with italki, the sponsors of this podcast. Um, as I've said before, I have a deal with the italki, which means that you can get some free teaching time. It's pretty simple. You can just sign into italki, search all the teachers they have, and you can find teachers for exams, business English, uh, or just for speaking and language correction. And then when you make a purchase, when you buy some lessons with a teacher, italki will give you 100 italki credits as a voucher, which you can then use as a discount on future purchases. Okay, uh, to get started and to get that offer, go to teacherluke.co.uk forward slash talk or just click an italki logo on my website. Okay, so you can definitely push your English even further by engaging in real conversations with native speakers and you can do it at home over the internet. Okay, right now let's move on with uh, the main part of this episode and here it is. Start the jingle. You're listening to Luke's English Podcast. For more information, visit teacherluke.co.uk. Hello, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome back to Luke's English Podcast. This is part two of a mystery story that I that I started in the previous episode. And um, do you remember the details of the story so far? Essentially, um, we're going through a text-based adventure on a website called textadventures.co.uk. Uh, and so the text-based adventure is basically a sort of, a, in this case, it's a detective story. And uh, we go through the story, reading different parts of the story, and we have different options as we go through. We can click on those options in order to see what happens next. Also, we can investigate different aspects of the story by clicking on certain words in the text in order to find out more information. Okay, so... What's the situation so far? Um, by the way, before you listen to this one, you really should listen to the previous episode first, okay? Uh, because this is part two of the story. So in order to understand anything in this one, you need to go back and listen to part one. Okay, so check that one out. It should be episode 338. So go back and listen to episode 338. You'll get the whole first part of this, including well, everything, all the, the rest of the context of the story, and also my comments about why it's worthwhile um, using text-based adventures for your English. They can be a really good way of sort of doing lots of listening. It's really good for your English. Um, so listen to the first part of this before you listen to this second part. Okay, so we now continue with the story, and I'm assuming that you've already listened to part one. Do you remember the details? Do you remember what happened in part one? Essentially, we are investigating the murder of a um, uh, of a man um, that appeared to be a mugging, um, but uh, we um, we understand that. Uh, let's see. So okay, Aaron, a man was found dead on the streets uh, uh, on a back street in London. We investigated the the murder, which appeared to be just a routine mugging, a routine mugging, just a normal mugging, you know, like a theft or a robbery a violent robbery in the street. It appeared to be just a mugging, but uh, our detective instincts told us that there was more to it than that, that it maybe went a little deeper. So after investigating, we learned that the victim was a uh, a chemist involved in making bombs and that um, he was receiving instructions from the navigator of a whaling ship, which was apparently, uh, um, apparently uh, off the coast of Belgium. So this whaling ship off the coast of Belgium, the navigator on that ship was sending written instructions to a bomb maker based in London. And uh, they've already um, managed to set off one bomb previously. Um, and that bomb uh, uh, targeted a, a scientist. Um, and then the second bomb, which we managed to uh, prevent from blowing up, the second bomb uh, apparently targeted another scientist and so these two scientists who have been targeted by these bomb attacks are involved in the production of light bulbs, the, elect the electric light bulb. Um, now, this whole story takes place in the Victorian era when uh, the light bulb was a new invention. So it seems to me that the motives behind these bomb attacks um, somehow relate to 
the invention of the light bulb and maybe there's some industrial um, sabotage going on that perhaps someone out there didn't want the light bulb to, to become a successful invention and maybe these attacks were an attempt to try to uh, prevent the light bulb from being a success. Because I imagine if you, if you make wax candles or oil lamps or something like that, uh, you don't want the light bulb to, to put you out of business. Um, so also there seemed to be some um, involvement of these two Russian guys. The, remember those stereotypical uh, bearded, uh, muscular Russians who apparently drank vodka? Are they involved in this? What's the connection between the Belgian whaling ship, uh, these two Russian vodka drinking uh, cliches, uh, and um, the invention of the light bulb? Well, let's continue the detective story. Um, so do you remember what happened last time? Um, well, we visited the house of the captain of the, the whaling ship in order to question him about um, in order to question him about the navigator, who is our prime suspect. Uh, and we went to the, the door of the house. So that's um, me, the, the detective. That's us. That We are the detective in the story. And our partner, Mardler. We visited the, the house of the captain. And when we knocked on the door and said that we wanted to question him, he ran away. He panicked and ran away, running uh, through the house and then out the back door and across the street. And he managed to run across the street just before a horse-drawn carriage was uh, coming along the, the street. And so we were left with an option. What do we do? Are we going to uh, run in front of the horse-drawn carriage, risking our lives? Because we, you know, we might end up being trampled to death by the horses. Uh, or do we go around the back, which is the, the, the slower route? We might lose Blakely, but it might be the safer option. Well, I've decided that we're going to sprint fast uh, in front of the carriage, even though it's going to be risky. I like the, the more dramatic um, option. So that's what we're going to do. So, uh, oh goodness, <laughs> apparently it says dynamic action fail. Oh dear. It says you miscalculate the speed of the carriage and you're clipped as you go by it. So we're not, it's a, not a direct hit, but part of the carriage has hit our shoulder or leg or something. It's clipped us, knocking you to the ground. So the the, the carriage clipped uh, clipped our shoulder and has knocked us to the ground. The carriage speeds off as you climb back onto your feet and continue chasing Blakely, Mardler beside you. Blakely runs into a narrow alley, sho shoving through a crowd of people leaving the local bar. Again, you're on his tail. Oh God, so that was the wrong move. So first of all, we got hit by the carriage. And secondly, it seems that we might lose Blakely. So what are we going to do? Are we going to push through the Londoners or are we going to climb across the cargo crates pressed up against the alley wall? So the alley, it's like a, a narrow road, a very narrow road, probably not big enough for a car to go down, but big enough to walk down. And apparently there's a pub there, a local bar, and there are some Londoners standing outside the bar and stuff. What are we going to do? Push through the Londoners or are we going to climb across some wooden crates that are against the alley wall? I don't like the idea of climbing across the, the wooden crates. I just feel like that could be dangerous. Something's going to break. We're going to hurt ourselves. I think we're going to push through the Londoners. Now, Londoners will not like that. They don't like it. You know, obviously no one likes being pushed around, but certainly Londoners. You, you know, you've got to respect people's public space in London, in England. So they're not going to like that. But that's what we're going to do because... Essentially, we are detectives chasing a, uh, a key witness. Um, so let's see. Oh, dear. That was a mistake. Dynamic action fail. Oh, dear. People are already toppling over. So people are already falling over as you try to shove through them, but they only hinder you so that the shoving through them didn't work. They hinder us. They sort of prevent us moving through. You struggle to push through the clumsy Londoners and get back to Blakely. I'll go round and cut him off barks Mardler as he splits off and runs down another alley. So Mardler's going to try and cut him off uh, from another direction. Uh, and it says, Blakely runs towards the docks. All right, so what are we going to do? It says, draw your revolver and demand that he stops running. So are we going to pull our gun out and shout, tell him to stop running or continue chasing him? Hmm. Well... If I pull my gun out and demand that he stops running, I don't think he's going to stop. I think Blakely is desperate enough to keep going. 
I don't think that's going to work. Plus, I don't want to shoot Blakely because I need to talk to him. We need to get information from him. So I think I should continue chasing him. So I'm going to continue chasing him. Okay, good. That was the right option. It says, you begin gaining on Blakely and he looks back startled and afraid. I'm gaining on him. Um, I'm, I'm beginning to catch him up. He slips on the wet docks and crashes down as you tackle him to the ground. You restrain Blakely as Mardler rounds the corner and meets you. Why were you running from us? Mardler demands. Of course, it's because... So here are the options. So it's because Blakely was smuggling opium. Blakely was plotting the bombings with Shakespeare. Blakely accidentally killed Shakespeare. And the Zoet Dame is a pirate ship. Blakely was smuggling opium. No, there's no mention of opium at all in this. I don't think it's got anything to do with opium. Blakely was plotting the bombings with Shakespeare. That sounds like the reasonable option. Blakely accidentally killed Shakespeare. Well, there's been no evidence or suggestion of that, has there? I don't think so. Or the Zoet Dame is a pirate ship. Well, I don't think it's a pirate ship. We already know it's a whaling ship. So logical, deductive reasoning would suggest that he was plotting the bombings with Shakespeare. Oh, that was the... <laughs> Deductive reasoning fail. And I'm not very good at being Sherlock Holmes, am I? Apparently that was the wrong option. So, I say to him, you were plotting the terrorist bombings of the train and the theatre with your navigator, correct? You say. Blakely looks genuine, genuinely confused. What are you talking about? Don't play stupid, you say. I have no idea what you're talking about, cries Blakely. Who's your navigator and where does he live? Asks Mardler. All right, so it seems that Blakely doesn't know what we're talking about. Oops. All right, well, let's see what happens next. My navigator is a quiet guy, says Blakely. He always keeps himself to himself, but he's a damn genius. The guy is brilliant at repairing the ship and inventing tools to keep us going. He's a little French guy with a long jagged scar under his eye. Used to be in the military, I think. His name is Yorick Rosencrantz. Do you have an address for this guy? Asks Mardler. Friends and family? He always isolated himself, says Blakely. That's all I know. That's a fake name, obviously, you say. Yorick and Rosencrantz are characters in William Shakespeare's play. Right. So, all right. So, apparently, Blakely, the captain thinks that the navigator is just a quiet person who's brilliant at inventing tools. He's French and he's got a scar under his eye. He used to be in the military and apparently his name is Yorick Rosencrantz. And we think that Yorick Rosencrantz is a fake name because in fact Yorick and Rosencrantz are characters in a William Shakespeare play. So we have to choose which Shakespeare play the names Yorick and Rosencrantz come from. So have you ever heard the names Yorick and Rosencrantz? The options are Macbeth, Hamlet and Othello. Well, if you know your Shakespeare, you might know a few quotes from Shakespeare plays. Let's start with Hamlet. There's that famous scene in Hamlet where uh, Hamlet, the main character, is holding a skull in his hand and he's sort of talking to the skull. That's a famous scene from Hamlet. And he says the line... Alas, poor Yorick. I knew him, Horatio. So he's talking about uh, Yorick. He's holding the skull of, I think it was a clown who used to entertain the king. He used to be the court jester, but uh, apparently he, he's dead and he's talking to the skull. And he's saying, alas, poor Yorick. I knew him, Horatio. So he's talking about how he knew the, uh, uh, the, the man who, what am I saying? He knew Yorick. The skull belonged to Yorick, so he's saying, I knew him. I knew Yorick. So, yes, we know that uh, Yorick comes from Hamlet. And Rosencrantz, as well, is another character in, in the Hamlet play. There's Rosencrantz and Guildenstern, two sort of side characters from Hamlet. So I think we know that uh, this, um, this, these names come from Hamlet. So let's click on that. Um, so, yes, good. That was the correct answer. And it, and it says, your knowledge is vast, to say the least. Well, thank you very much. Uh, Blakely doesn't know anything else about his mysterious French navigator, so you send him away to be questioned further at Scotland Yard. 
By the way, listeners, Scotland Yard, that's the headquarters of the police in London. All right, Scotland Yard. Now it's known as New Scotland Yard. Um, So we've sent Blakely to Scotland Yard for further questioning. And now night has fallen over your industrial metropolis. The thick clouds of smoke blending with the darkness. The twinkling of stars is a thing of the past as heavy fumes obscure the sky. You sit in your lonesome apartment reflecting on the case. Right, so they're descriptions of the sort of Victorian ear London, that um, stereotypical version of London from the past, which is, you know, full of smoke and fog and uh, darkness and so on. And we're sitting in our apartment now reflecting on this case as we continue. So morning warms the London streets as you and Mardler go over the evidence from the case at Scotland Yard. You bite your nail in thought as you try to piece together the mystery. Who is the mysterious bomber, Shakespeare? And where is he? What's his motive? You think back to the two Russian brothers that you saw leaving the theatre before you entered to handle the bomb. They had the same homemade vodka that was left at Bouvier's destroyed house. Surely they are connected to the case. They must be hired goons for Shakespeare. They must be like hired hitmen, sort of uh, hired men working for Shakespeare. So what are their professions? Let's see. So either they're carpenters, they're fishermen, or they're gardeners. Now, do you remember any details about the Russian, uh, the two Russian brothers? They were sort of big, apparently sort of well-built. Um, they had calluses on their hands from using tools in some sort of work. They had sawdust. Remember that sawdust in their beards, which is a bit, a uh, bit strange, a bit of a strange sight in the modern day. But uh, if you, if someone was working as a carpenter, there might be a lot of sawdust involved. What is sawdust? You might be thinking. Well, if you cut some wood, let's say you're you're doing some carpentry and you saw some wood. You know when you saw, let's say, you're sawing like that. That's, I'm, I'm trying to uh, demonstrate what sawing is. I haven't just uh, lost my mind. But, okay, that's sawing. Okay, when you saw a piece of wood, it creates dust, doesn't it? It creates like wood dust. There's a little pile of wood dust on the floor. As you saw through the piece of wood and it breaks off, there's, there's a little bit of wood dust on the floor. That wood dust is known as sawdust, okay? Uh, so these guys had sawdust in their beards. I imagine that's because if you work as a carpenter, there's a lot of sawdust in the air and it might get stuck in your beard. So I think these two guys are carpenters. Let's see. Yes, good. Excellent acuity. The sawdust in their beards and the blisters on their hands from heavy tools must mean that they're carpenters of some sort. But where do they work? So either they work in the centre of the city they work on the shore of the Thames or they work on the outskirts of London. Now, I think we can um, we can sort of cancel out the idea that they are in the centre of the city just because there's no evidence to suggest that they work in the centre, except maybe they spend some time there. But um, I think they may work on the shore of the Thames because, do you remember, they had some mud on their boots and apparently the mud was like the same colour or the same type of mud that you find on the um, on the shore of the River Thames. So it could be that one. Also, they had, do you remember, they had like little seed, uh, seed pods stuck to their trousers. Um, you know, those sticky seeds that come off certain types of plant. We call them burrs. They, there were some burrs on their trousers as well. So that might suggest that they were on the outskirts of London where there's a bit more countryside. There might be, you know, bits of uh, wildlife, some, some plant life that they have to walk through maybe and that's where they got the burrs. But I wonder if there are burrs as well, uh, plants that produce burrs around the river. Maybe there were in the, in the 19th century. I think that they work on the shore of the Thames. What do you think? You think it's a good idea? Yeah, of course. Well, of course it is. Let's click it. Yes, exactly. Perceptive, as always. Their boots were covered with mud from the Thames. They're likely to go there often, probably for work. You visualise the complicated streets of London, mentally mapping out the Thames. And you remember that the Russians were also struck... The Russians were also stuck with burrs from the rare uh, punctuvine plant. Where on the Thames is their construction and puncture vines. 
So we need to try and find that place where there's both carpentry construction and puncture vines along the River Thames. That's probably where uh, we'll find out where these Russians work. So you and Mardler explore the shore of the Thames in areas where puncture vines grow. You come across the construction site that fits your profile. Brilliant. And you snoop around investigating for a few minutes before seeing the two stereotypical Russian brothers. What's going to happen next? Let's continue. So Mardler calls out to the Russians and steps forward. They look over and jump in surprise. It's apparent that they aren't going to come in easily for questioning. One of them picks up a brick and the other brandishes a sledgehammer. Oh my God. Sounds like uh, we're going to have to have a fight with these guys. And I don't look forward to that prospect because they're both, if you remember, heavily built, um, tough-looking Russian guys. It's, I don't think it's advisable to get into a fight with a Russian in any case, certainly not when they are sort of large uh, carpenters who may or may not have been drinking this weird homemade vodka. I don't think it's a good idea. Luckily, though, I've got a gun in my pocket. So what happens next is you draw your gun and demand that they drop their weapons but they're hardly phased. They're just not bothered by that. The first Russian throws his brick at you and catches your wrist with a lucky shot, knocking your gun to the side. Oh, God, we've lost our gun. The second Russian charges fearlessly, closing the gap between you and him and bringing the hammer backwards in preparation to swing. He's within striking distance, so we could, have a, we could punch or kick him. What are we going to do? All right, so time has slowed down now. The Russian is charging towards us. He's got his hammer backwards. He's preparing to swing it down towards us. He's within striking distance. We could probably punch him or kick him. What are we going to do? So we've got four options. First option, duck backwards and retreat. So sort of duck back away from him and then retreat. Uh, we could charge the Russian and go for his arms. So we could rush towards him and maybe try and attack his arms go for his arms, maybe try and grab his arms or something. We could charge the Russian and punch him in the stomach or dive for the gun, dive for our revolver, which has fallen on the side. Now, let's think about this. Duck backwards and retreat. That seems like quite a good idea because this Russian guy, he's big, he's heavy. He's got a big, heavy sledgehammer above his head. Um, he's probably not going to be that fast, especially if he's a big guy and he's been drinking. He might not have the sharpest reaction. So ducking backwards might mean that he falls over. And that would then allow me to, you know, calmly and casually pick up the gun and deal with him in some way. Um, or I charge the Russian and go for his arms. I don't like that option. This is a big Russian drunk man. And he's probably very strong, especially if he's a carpenter. I don't think I'm going to be able to stop him. Or I charge the Russian and punch him in the stomach. Again, I think he's too big and strong. I think a punch to the stomach's not going to make a difference. I think I need to go for the intelligent option. I think I should duck backwards and retreat. Diving for my revolver. Mm, that could be an idea. That could be a good option because I could dive. The Russian would, would probably miss me and fall over. Then I'd have my revolver. I don't think any of that's necessary. I'm going to go for the intelligent, calm and cool option of ducking backwards and letting this Russian fall on his ass. Let's see what happens. So I'm going to duck backwards and retreat. I'm hoping this is the intelligent option. Let's see. No. Dynamic action fail. I just failed. Oh, dear. So it goes like this. You duck away from the swinging hammer and step backwards, avoiding long sweeping attacks. You're focused on the Russian and fail to notice the small pile of wood behind you. Your foot catches on the wood and you fall over, the Russian standing over you menacingly. Oh dear, this is not a good position to be in. So we've just, we stepped back, fell on a piece of wood, fell over. The Russian is now standing over us. What's going to happen next? Well, bang! Mardler fires a shot at the Russian before he can land a hit on you. The bullet pierces his arm and knocks him staggering backwards. He drops the hammer, and you tackle him to the ground, restraining him. All right, so I've done a sort of, after Mardler's shot him in the arm, I've, he's dropped the hammer, and I've rugby tackled him to the ground, and I've restrained him. Mardler, uh, Mardler raises his pistol, what? <laughs> Mardler raises his pistol towards the brick-throwing Russian and forces him to surrender. Okay, so after a little bit of rough and tumble, 
action, we've managed to uh, force these guys to surrender. Okay, now, <laughs> one of the Russians now is speaking, is saying something in Russian. So I've no idea how to say that. It's actually written in Cyrillic as well here. So what on earth is that? Okay, just give me a second and I'll play that to you and you can actually hear what the Russian has said. Okay, so I've found out what it is and apparently this Russian is saying, leave me alone, police. Like, leave me alone, police. And I've just put it into Google Translate and the uh, helpful translator woman, like robot woman from Google Translate is now going to read out this bit of Russian. Um, so Russian people or anyone who speaks Russian, you can tell me if... Uh, this is correct pronunciation by Google Translate. So this should mean, leave me alone, police. Let's hear it. That's very slow. Let's hear it at normal speed. I don't know if you can hear that, but anyway, apparently what that Russian guy said is, leave me alone, police. Let's get back to the story. So leave me alone, police, cries one of the Russians. Now, fortunately... You're fluent in Russian, of course. And apparently this, according to the story, this means get off me. Get off me, copper. Get off me, cop. Now, you question the two men and find out their names. Uh, and apparently their names are Akim and Fedot. Are these typical names? I don't know. Anyway, that's the names. Those are the names of these two guys, Akim and Fedot. They're brothers that were hired by a mysterious military veteran Frenchman with a long scar under his left eye. They planted the two bombs for the client and raided Bovier's house. They give you the same fake name that Blakely supplied, Yorick Rosencrantz. Apparently they knew very little about the Frenchman. He was discreet. You send the two accomplices to Scotland Yard. All right, so the two stereotypical or... I don't know if these Russian characters are accurate representations of what... Uh, typical Russian carpenters in London would have been like in the 19th century. But anyway, we've caught them. They've given us this information and then we've sent them to Scotland Yard. And so they apparently then, what well, they, they were hired by a mysterious military veteran Frenchman with a long scar under his left eye. They planted the two bombs for their client and raided Bovier's house. Okay, so they were the guys responsible for all of that. And they give you the same fake name that Blakely supplied, Yorick Rosencrantz. All right, apparently they knew very little about the Frenchman. He was discreet. All right, so what's next? So who is Yorick Rosencrantz, aka Shakespeare? This is the navigator guy. Who is this guy? You decide to rethink the case retracing your steps. What is the connection between Yorick Rosencrantz, aka Shakespeare, and Gobert Bovier, the victim? Obviously, Bovier was hired to build bombs for Rosencrantz, but that's such a specific skill. Where did they meet? So let's think about that. Where did they meet? So here we've got three options. Rosencrantz and Bovier were both whalers. Rosencrantz and Bovier were both chemists. And Rosencrantz and Bovier were both soldiers. All right. Now, uh, I don't remember that much about Bovier. Uh, but we know that uh, Shakespeare or Rosencrantz, same, same person. We know that Rosencrantz um, was a, uh, a military veteran with a scar under his left eye. The scar under his eye has to be significant. He was a military veteran. So we know that Rosencrantz was a soldier. Do we know that Bovier was a soldier? What do we know about him? He smoked those cigarettes. I think I'm going to say that there were... I know that I know that uh, Bovier was a chemist and that um, uh, Rosencrantz was a soldier. Maybe Bovier was a soldier too. I think I'm going to say they were both soldiers. I reckon there's some backstory about some military story uh, which involved um, uh, Rosencrantz getting the scar. I think they were both soldiers. I think they have some military past together. Ah, good. Brilliant. That was the correct answer. But where did they meet? So either they met in Vietnam, they met in Belgium, or they met in London. Where did they meet? Well, how on earth can we know where they met? Um, hmm. Oh, I, I can't... I, I'm not sure. Where did they meet? Well, they met in Vietnam. We know that um, Bovier smoked uh, that Vietnamese tobacco. Belgium was near where the boat was when the letter was sent uh, and London is where they both are operating 
do we have any connection between Rosencrantz and Vietnam? I don't think so, except for the cigarettes. Belgium? Maybe it's Belgium. Maybe it's Belgium, because Rosencrantz apparently is French, um, and that's like an, a neighbour of, of France. I'm going to say Belgium. No, that's wrong. Apparently, Yorick had travelled to Belgium at least once as Rosencrantz, had travelled to Belgium at least once. But there's no evidence that supports Bovier visiting Belgium. Ah, should have known. It's very unlikely that Bovier and Rosencrantz met in Belgium. More likely is Vietnam. Ah, that's where Bovier picked up his addiction for Thuoc Lao, that tobacco. It's too rare and potent to randomly start smoking in London. He must have been a soldier in the French colonisation of Vietnam. Ah, of course. That's the connection between France and Vietnam. They used to, you know, uh, there used to be a French colony there. Bovier undoubtedly specialised in demolition, explaining his expertise with explosives. That's how Rosencrantz knew Bovier was a skilled bomb maker. Right, so they got a past in the sort of French occupation and colonisation of Vietnam and some of the conflicts that happened there. Interesting, right. So you travel across London to visit an old friend. One of, your own, one of your only friends, his name is Julian Ashworth. He's a dedicated military historian that's bound to have some specific knowledge about the French colonisation of Vietnam. You find, him, uh, you find him browsing old volumes at his large bookstore. So we've met Julian, we've gone to see our old friend, Julian Ashworth. He knows all about uh, the French colonisation of Vietnam. And we find him, he's looking through old books, old volumes at his large bookstore. You tell Ashworth about your inquiry and he reveals a mound of records about the French colonisation of Vietnam. He always likes to stay up to date with military information. You start rifling through the files, searching for information about Bovier's platoon and section. After hours of research, you come across a file about Bovier's section. You see him sitting in a photo of French soldiers. Beside, beside him, there's a soldier with a jagged scar under his left eye. Yorick Rosencrantz. Apparently, according to the book, his real name is Renard Vauclin. Renard Vauclin. Okay, so let's continue. You hold the photograph close. You've seen Vauclin's face before, recently. The face is burning in your mind as you struggle to remember where you saw him. Where did we see this man with a scar under his left eye? Where was it? Where have we seen someone with a scar? Now, it could be the gentleman's flame smoke shop. It could be the Aldous Theatre. It could be the London docks near the bars. Honestly, listeners, honestly, I can't remember where we saw someone with a scar under his left eye. Do you? Was it the guy who runs the smoke shop? The guy who apparently was having an affair with, his, uh, with that girl? Did he have a scar on his eye? Was it at the oldest theatre? Did we see someone with a scar there? Um, was it was it the London docks near the bars? You know, when we pushed through those Londoners, was there a guy with a scar? I don't think so. Hmm. hmm. Okay. I, I've got a sneaking suspicion it's the guy from the smoke shop. I don't really remember. We could go back. We could go back and check. But I'm gonna, just going to go out on a limb. I think it's the smoke shop guy. Let's see. No, okay, no, I'm wrong. That can't be it. There were just a few people there and none of them had a scar on his or her left eye. Ah, okay. The image of Vauclin comes back to you in a flash. I think we've remembered something. You were so close to him. You brushed past him as you were chasing Blakely through the streets. He was no more than a face in the crowd at the time, blending in with the thick London masses. Ah, of course. Now, listeners, you won't have seen this, but there is a photograph. There are some photographs in this story as you go through, like sketched photographs, uh, sketched pictures. And yes, I now remember that when we rushed past those Londoners and bashed into them, there was a photograph and there was a man with a scar under his left eye. Yes, there he was. So you focus your mind and try to recall details about Vauclin. Your uh, eidic, uh, eidetic memory rebuilds an image of the chase in your mind's eye. You only saw Vauclin for a, second, for a second, but you knew it was him. But you still don't know where he is now. 
you decide to focus your mind on either his recent fishing, his finger burns, or close encounters with many cats. Hmm, okay, so I can click on the, uh, the, the mental image that I have of Vauclin. Let's have a look at what this image looks like. So it describes that image. It says, Vauclin was wearing a grey buttoned shirt and black trousers. His shoes had red clay on them. Clay is a sort of earth. It's a kind of mud. So his shoes had red clay on them, distinct to the Brentwood neighbourhood near the docks. There were cat hairs on the ankles of his pants from multiple breeds. So that suggests that there were different, many different types of cat hairs on his trousers at the bottom and from many different types of cat. His fingers had fresh cuts from fish hooks and burns. You remember the smell of haddock hitting your nose as you ran past him? Ah, that does sound familiar. Your powerful memory is working at full throttle as you recreate the brief image of Vauclin. Okay, so remember the options that we have? The options are that um, we have to try and focus on either his recent fishing, his finger burns, or the close encounters with many cats. And the image of him is that he's got mud on his shoes, mud that comes from the Brentwood neighbourhood near the docks. There were cat hairs on the ankles of his pants from different breeds, and his fingers had got fresh cuts from fish hooks and burns. Uh, so, okay, that means he's probably fishing for haddock and cooking the haddock. If he's got lots of cats, maybe he's feeding the cats with the haddock. Maybe he does the fishing in Brentwood near the docks. He's catching haddock, which he's then using to feed the cats. I think that's probably it. It's probably the cats. Let me just check about the multiple breeds. Um, is it impossible to identify the breed of a cat by recalling glancing at a few stray hairs the night before? Is it possible to identify what types of cats... Uh, he's looking after just by looking at or just tr by trying to remember the hairs it's improbable but not impossible your sharp perceptive abilities and knowledge of London's animals lead you to believe that Vauclan has been in close contact with Burmese and British short hairs it looks like maybe a Cornish Rex or two was present but you're not but you're not certain Vauclan must have really liked cats. So definitely Burmese cats, British shorthair cats, and maybe a couple of Cornish Rex cats as well. Burmese cats? Burma, that's not far from Vietnam, is it? Um, so I think, it's, I think it's the cats. I think we're going to focus on his close encounters with many cats. Yes, good. We've got a point for deductive reasoning. So, Renard Vauclin was probably feeding local cats in the Brentwood neighbourhood. The fish hook cut and the smell of haddock, that's a kind of fish, suggest that he's been fishing recently. And the abundance of varied cat hair on his ankles guide you to think that he's been feeding the fish to the cats. Yes, that's exactly what I thought. Okay, so it's a long shot, but you don't have much else to go off. So I think we're going to investigate the cat situation. So we continue. It's now dusk in London. So dusk, that means the sun is going down. It's dusk in London as you pursue the stray cat theory. You wander the Brentwood district asking locals if anyone in the neighbourhood is especially fond of cats. A young woman tells you about a man living down the street that feeds the local cats fish scraps every night. Uh, this sounds like it could be him, right? You follow the sound of meows, meow, meow, meows, that's what cats say in English, they say meow. So you follow the sound of meows and you see British short hair cats darting across the road, right? That sounds good. The scent of haddock hits your nose as you peer through a house window. We can smell haddock, we look through a house window. This could very well be Renard Vauclin's house. No one answers when you knock, so you go ahead and pick the lock, like that. The door clicks open and you creep inside. A shadow moves across the wall towards as someone approaches. So a shadow moves across the wall on the other side as somebody approaches. So it's got to be him, hasn't it? It's got to be uh, Vauclan. So what are we going to do? We've got two options. We can draw our gun and jump out to surprise whoever it is. So we can pull out our gun, jump out, or we hide behind the table. 
Now, I, I would imagine that if someone, if we've just picked a lock and entered the room, the person in the room is going to know that we're there, right? But it seems a little bit of a risk to just immediately draw the gun. We don't know if this person's armed. We don't know what's going to happen. I think we should hide behind the table and see, see what's going on. So, good, that was the right choice. It says, you dart behind the table and wait for the shadow to approach you. You realise it's just the shadow of a British short hair cat wandering through the house. It stretches and scampers away. Whew, thank God for that. I could have shot a cat. That wouldn't have been very good. That would have been a disaster. Thank goodness I just jumped behind the table. So, you keep sneaking through the house looking for Vauclin. There are notes scattered across his tables and bookshelves. It looks like he was attempting to make electrically powered lights, much like Sir Joseph Swan, the target at the theatre. Okay. He must have been killing off other scientists pursuing electrical light so that he could have a monopoly on the idea. He realised the genius of the invention and wanted to reap all the profits himself. I thought so, right? We thought that, didn't we, listeners? Well, I say we, it was me, but you might have thought that too. Yeah, we knew that there was something to do with the electrical lights and something about, um, you know, stopping other people from um, producing electrical lights. It's about kind of corporate competition, corporate uh, sabotage. Okay, so we continue. You stealth, like a ninja, you stealth your way through the house and towards the study. Peering inside through the glass, you see... Renard Vauclin. His scar is visible in the candlelight and he's working at his desk. He's furiously going through his notes quickly. You stand in the doorway and draw your revolver. Renard Vauclin, you shout, you're under arrest. Vauclin looks up from his work and his face grows pale. He's faster than you expect and reaches down to grab a pistol of his own. We now have two options. What are we going to do? Shoot him or take cover? Before we do that, let's have a little look at the pistol that he's got. So, we can see a picture of the pistol. It's a, it's a very long revolver. It's probably a six-shooter. It looks a bit like a cowboy gun, you know? Those old-fashioned six-shooter-style revolvers. It's got a very long barrel. It looks like um, a bit... It looks like quite a big, heavy gun. And it has the word prototype written on it. So is this some sort of prototype, special custom-made weapon? I don't like the look of that. I think it's a big enough gun that if he shoots me, I'm, I'm going to die. It's not like some little pistol. But then again, it being such a big gun, it might be difficult for him to fire it quickly. And I'm already pointing the gun at him. What am I going to do? Shoot him or take cover? Now, if this was an action movie starring Liam Neeson, I might just shoot him. In fact, to be honest, if I was Liam Neeson in this situation, I'd probably just go over there and just sort of punch him in the face with my elbow and then break his neck or something. You know, I wouldn't need to shoot him. But this is not a Liam Neeson film. This is a detective story set in the 19th century. Hmm. I reckon I'm going to take cover, all right, because I want to arrest him. I want this guy to face justice and I want to know the story. I don't want to shoot him because then we're not going to know what's going on. So I'm going to take cover. All right. Now you might think, no, Luke, you should shoot him. Don't worry. I'm confident. I think that if I take cover, he's not going to get away. We're going to catch this guy and we're going to, you know, take him down to Scotland Yard and we'll put him on trial and he'll, he'll, he'll go to prison, I reckon. Let's see. You roll behind the door and duck down as Vauclan draws his pistol. Drop the gun, you yell. Bang, bang, bang. Vauclan's bullets tear through the wall, narrowly missing you. I know you're Shakespeare, mastermind behind the terrorist bombings, you say from behind your hiding place. You opposing the attacks, you opposing the attacks as random bombings while you uh, discreetly targeted scientists that were working on making electrical light just like you're trying to do. You're afraid of the competition because you're just not that smart. Bang! Another bullet rips through the wall inches from your shoulder. And we continue. These bullets were for Swan, shouts Vauclan. I had no idea I'd be using them on some bum detective. Bang! The bullet glances your arm, cutting your shirt. 
Is Voclan out of bullets? Let's see. So we know it's a six shooter, right? It was. A, it looked like a six shooter pistol. Those ones that that take six bullets. How many bullets has he shot so far? We had bang, bang, bang. That's three. Bang, four, and then another bang. That was five. So he's got one bullet left. So our options are to either jump out and attack before he has a chance to reload, or wait for him to use all his bullets. He's only used five bullets. He's got one bullet left. I think we're going to wait for him to use his bullets. But he's he's close to to getting us. He's already grazed our arm. I think that's the right thing to do, though. Yes, it is the right thing. So you take off your jacket and throw it in the path of the doorway as a distraction. Vauclan fires at the flying jacket instinctively using his last bullet. You jump out and subdue him before he can reload. We jump out and subdue him. How did we subdue him? I expect we sort of gave him a, gave him a, a palm on the, back of the, on the back of the neck. Wham! A sort of Liam Neeson edge of the hand on the back of the neck and he's passed out. We've got him. So you bring Renard Vauclan to Scotland Yard in handcuffs. There's one less maniac on the streets of London. You and the rest of the police force search his house and find more than enough evidence to send him away to prison. Plus, he fired at a detective. This guy is going to face a long time in jail. Great work, says Mardler, as you bask in your success. Now, what are we going to say in return? We could say, I couldn't have done it without you, Mardler. Or we say, elementary, my dear Mardler. Well, it's obvious, isn't it? I have to say, elementary, my dear Mardler. Let's see. Elementary, my dear Mardler, I say to him. And it turns out, you're the greatest detective in London. The end. Wow. So there it is. That was the conclusion of the Victorian detective, the Shakespearean bomber. That was a pretty good one, don't you think? Um, If you're still listening to this, then congratulations. Well done. We did it. We solved the murder and we are the greatest detective in London. Uh, And uh, that's fun, isn't it? Yeah, that was good. Now, um, don't forget, you can play that game yourself. You can go through that all again, uh, which means that, you know, you can read it all and you can like take different options. You can actually read the text that I read to you. Uh, You can check out words that you weren't sure about by Googling them. Uh, or looking them up in your dictionary or whatever way you choose to do it. Um, But you can read all of that, and I suggest that you do. Go through it yourself. You might make different choices and read different things. Um, And there is, uh, on textadventures.co.uk, there is another Victorian detective story. It's Victorian Detective 2, which is uh, the sequel. Is it the sequel? Let me have a little look. Let's just have a little look here. So... um, Here's another one, Victorian Detective 2 by Peter Carlson. And the opening of this one is London, 1861. Over the past six weeks, three girls have gone missing from their homes, vanished into nothingness. At each home, there's been a macabre, smiley face carved deep into the floor, grinning up at family and investigators. Wow, okay. So this is the the case of some sort of serial killer in London in 1861 who's leaving uh, weird, macabre-looking smiley faces carved into the floor um, at each murder site. That's the Victorian Detective 2. If you're interested in trying to solve that crime, you can just go to textadventures.co.uk and find Victorian Detective 2. Okay, so I wonder if you managed to follow every detail of the story. Uh, And if you didn't, well, you could listen to it again, of course, because you'll find that on repeated listens, you'll pick up more and more. Or you can just go and check out the text adventure yourself. And that's probably a really good way of doing it. And you should check out the other text adventures. There's some really good ones. um, You know, we've got some really cool things, including um, a really classic text adventure game called The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, which is also a best-selling book. I've mentioned it on this podcast before. The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy is a, a best-selling book, a British science fiction comedy, uh, and it's also a movie and a TV series, and it's a text adventure game. So you could check out that. That's that's a pretty good one. And there's loads of others. There's a zombie one. There's one relating to um, pirates. There's like a pirate game and all sorts of other things. Check it out, uh, textadventures.co.uk. Um 
Right, so that that pretty much brings us to the end of this episode. I wonder if you managed to kind of uh, solve the crime. Did you understand everything that was going on? Um, And do you have any comments about this episode? Please leave your comments on the page, teacherluke.co.uk. You'll just need to find this episode. Um, and, uh, And that's it, isn't it? Yeah, okay. Did you enjoy this? Did you enjoy that? Let me know. Give me your feedback. I'm always interested to know what you think. Um, every time I, I uh, record an episode of this podcast, or every time I kind of switch on the microphone, or every time I have to decide what kind of episode I do next, I have like, you know, a hundred different possibilities. There's like so many different ideas. And the the decision-making process is based on a few things. Like one of them is just like how to make an episode that I think people are really going to enjoy listening to. And secondly, how I can do that without spending all of my time preparing it, which is why this is this was quite a, a useful one, because I didn't really have to spend that much time on preparation. Um, so that was good. And, and also there's the language content. What kind of language am I presenting in episodes? And also I have to think about, am I going to teach, explicitly teach content, or am I just going to provide uh, uh, listening material for you? Um, you know, what's the level going to be is it going to be um sort of quite high high level is you know will it be difficult for most people to understand and you know how how can that be a good thing and also uh, equally i could decide to to play you things that are slightly easier to understand because there are benefits for that as well so many different things and i have so many different sort of episodes lined up lots of different things planned just there just aren't enough hours in the day um but anyway Regardless of all that, I hope that you just enjoyed listening to this episode. Uh, And that's it. I'll speak to you again very soon. Thank you again for listening. But for now, goodbye. Bye, 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 bye. Thanks again for listening to Luke. Whoa, 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 whoa. Wait just a second. Hold on a minute. That's not the end of the episode. I've just finished recording that other bit. You know, the, the main part that you were listening to there. I've just finished recording that. And I just sat back in my chair and I thought, that was great. I loved that story. That was a brilliant story by Peter Carlson. Fantastic. But, wait a minute, there are still some loose ends that need to be tied up. There are still some little details that I wasn't sure about. So I thought, I bet that my listeners still have a few little questions. And if you didn't understand that fully, I think it's probably worth me just going through it again, okay? So, if you didn't completely understand what happened in the story, don't worry, because... I didn't understand absolutely everything either. What I've just done is I've kind of gone through the story again and I've just tried to simplify it and clarify it, okay? So what I will now do for you is give you a simple, clear version of the story so that you definitely understand the whole thing. There is maybe one detail that I still still don't really understand and maybe you can help me with it. Also, bear in mind the fact that the different choices you make in this story will give you slightly different narratives. Okay, so the narrative that I've done, uh, I'm going to just explain that to you right now. Okay, also, I'd like to just sort of let you know how I did as a detective, because I didn't say this before, but when you click the end, it gives you a page of results. It kind of gives you an assessment of you as a detective based on things like your deductive reasoning and your ability to deal with different moments in in, uh, different moments of action. Okay, so first of all, though, let me give you a clarified version of this story, okay? So, first, we investigate the scene of a murder. A man has been shot dead, but it's not just a random mugging. It appears to be deeper than that. We work out the victim's identity by investigating a smoke shop, uh, a tobacconist, where he bought some Vietnamese tobacco. The owner of the smoke shop, um, under some pressure, tells us the victim's name. And the victim was called Mr. Gobert Bovier. And the smoke shop owner gives us his address. So we visit the address of Bovier and discover that it's been trashed. The whole place has been completely trashed. All the objects in the house have been thrown around. And it appears that someone else has been here searching for something. Who was it? We learn later on it was two Russian brothers. Why were they searching the place? Well, we will have to try and come back to that. That's one of the loose ends that I have. I'm not really sure why the Russian brothers were searching Bovier's place. Any idea? Let me know in the comments section if you understand why uh, Bovier's place had been trashed. I understand the Russian brothers were looking for something. Why? What were they looking for? Um, 
So we discover in Bouvier's house, we discover a hidden science laboratory where Bouvier was making bombs. It turns out Bouvier was a chemist, was a chemist who specialised in bomb production. Uh, there's some action then when we discover plans for another bomb attack in a theatre. So we go to the theatre and... Uh, we then that's the the moment that we first spot the russians but we don't follow them again we'll come back to those russians in a bit uh we manage to prevent the bomb from exploding and then discover that the targets of the bomb was a scientist called sir joseph swan sir joseph swan was planning to patent and sell a new invention called the electric light bulb um so the victim of a previous explosion also was a scientist working on the light light bulb invention. So apparently the murders, those two bomb explosions, uh, or sorry, the murderers, the killers, are targeting the makers of these light bulbs. Um, still doesn't explain why Bouvier was killed. We investigate the whaling ship, which we work out is moored in the docks. Okay, so what whaling ship? Well, this is the whaling ship where it turns out uh, Bovier was receiving instructions from someone, someone with a hidden identity. We work out that he was a, a navigator on a whaling ship that was um, sailing off the coast of Belgium. We t- it turns out that whaling ship is now moored in London again. So we go to investigate the whaling ship. Investigation of the ship tells us that the navigator of the ship was the one sending instructions to Bovier, the victim, to make the bombs. We managed to track down the captain of the ship who runs away from us. There's a chase through the streets near the docks. During the chase, we glimpse a man with a scar on the left side of his face, but it's not important at that moment. So we're chasing the captain. We catch the captain. Why was he running? Well, it's not because he knew about the bomb attacks. So why was the captain running away? Not because he knew about the bomb attacks. He wasn't involved in that. Apparently, it's for another reason. We don't actually find out why he was running, but it's probably because the ship was involved in some other criminal activity, maybe pirating, maybe smuggling. So he was running from the police because of that, but not because he knew anything about this bomb uh, conspiracy. So anyway, the captain tells us the name of the navigator, and the name is Yorick Rosencrantz. Now, this is obviously a fake name because it's taken from two characters in the Shakespeare play, Hamlet. Uh, so this obviously was, these, this name was created by the navigator who's using fake names. He's using the name Hamlet, uh, he's using the name Shakespeare in the notes for, for the bomb maker. Uh, and he's also using the, the name Yorick Rosencrantz with other people that he's dealing with. So we decide to investigate those two Russian brothers from earlier on in the story. We work out that they must be carpenters working on a construction site near the river. So we go to investigate them. After a fight with the Russians, we learn that they were employed by the navigator, Shakespeare Yorick, to plant the bomb at the theatre and later to trash Bouvier's house. Later, earlier, I'm not sure. So the Russians were employed by Shakespeare to plant the bomb at the theatre and also to trash Bouvier's house. Now, honestly, I still don't know why they trashed his house. Can you tell me why they did that? Still not sure. There must be a reason. I just haven't worked out what it is. But, you know, you're clever people. You might be able to tell me. So, um, after a bit more deductive reasoning, we later discover that the secretive navigator Shakespeare Yorick guy is, in fact, a former French soldier who was posted in Vietnam, where France had a colony. In fact, in Vietnam, he met Mr. Bouvier, the victim of the murder at the beginning of the story, the bomb maker. So, Bouvier and Shakespeare knew each other in Vietnam, and as a soldier, Bouvier was an expert in explosives. Okay, so this is obviously why uh, the navigator guy chose to use Bouvier, because he used him as a, as a bomb maker, right? So, with the help of a friend who is an expert on military history, we work out that the Shakespeare character is actually called Renard Vauclin. Okay, we see a photograph of him and see that he has a scar below his left eye. 
using our amazing photographic memory or our eidetic memory, we managed to remember where we saw this guy before. It turns out he was there during the chase with the captain. He was hiding in the crowd of Londoners. So we do remember seeing him. Our amazing memory recall and deductive reasoning tell us that he must be living near the docks where he keeps cats. So we head to the docks and the presence of some cats in the street leads us to the right house. And there we discover Vauclan, uh, the navigator Shakespeare character and master criminal behind both the killing of Bouvier and also the bomb attacks. And we learn that Vauclan was also trying to develop electric light bulbs and in fact was killing off his competitors in order to have a monopoly on the industry, which is not such a bad idea considering the massive profits that he could make from having a monopoly on light bulbs, considering, you know, how many light bulbs get sold these days. Um, So um, that was his plan to try and monopolise the light bulb market from the very beginning in order to make a lot of money. But we we know, don't we, everyone, that crime doesn't pay. And in the end, um, it didn't work out for him because after a quick gunfight, we managed to catch Vauclan, arrest him, and send him to Scotland Yard, where he will be charged and tried in front of a judge in the proper manner. And in the end, we got it. We got the man, and we solved the crime, didn't we? But for me, there are still two things that I don't understand, and maybe I need to do the story again and choose some different options, because I think I'm not quite the master detective uh, that I should be. So first thing is, why uh, did the Russians uh, trash Um, Bouvier's house why did they do that and the second thing is why was Bouvier killed why did they kill Bouvier why did Vauclan kill Bouvier because we learn from the letter that he sent to him from the the whaling ship the letter said basically there's been a change of plan meet me in an alleyway at this address at this time so apparently Vauclan and Bouvier met each other there and that's where Vauclan shot Bouvier dead. But why? Why did he shoot him? Maybe it's because Bouvier knew too much. That's probably what it was. Bouvier knew too much um, and so uh, Vauclan had to kill him in order to to make sure that uh, you know it, it didn't cause him problems in the future. That's probably what it was. Vauclan was just trying to clear up you know, um, the situation so that no one could trace him. But why didn't he then, was he then going to kill the Russian guys? Because they seem to be involved in this too. But I suppose the Russian guys didn't know who he was because he'd given them a fake name. That's it. So Bouvier was his friend from the war in Vietnam. They knew each other. Uh, Bouvier knew too much about Vauclan. And so Vauclan had to kill him. Uh, And uh, I guess that's it, right? But why did the Russians trash uh, Bouvier's house? Still don't understand. What were they looking for? Because they were working for Vauclan. Why would Vauclan send the Russians to trash his house? I still don't really get that, but maybe you can tell me, ladies and gents. Maybe you can let me know. Um, I also mentioned that uh, we there are also some results. So what I, I might apparently be the greatest detective in London, but uh, um, that might not be saying much, actually. Let's see what, what the results were, what kind of detective I really was. And um, maybe if you do this text adventure, you might get better scores than me. Um, see if you can beat me. So... At every step in that story, I was getting points or losing points for deductive reasoning and dynamic action. In the end, for deductive reasoning, I got a score of 12. I don't quite know what... Okay, I got a score of 12. So that that's, a, that's 12 out of 17. And for dynamic action, I got a score of 3. That's, a th- that's 3 out of a possible 6. So since I got 12, that means apparently I'm a bloodhound. A bloodhound is a kind of dog. You know those dogs that police use to to um, search for things? We call them bloodhounds. So, you know, like I think there's a couple of stories in which uh, Sherlock Holmes uses a bloodhound. So anyway, a, with a score of 12 out of 17, apparently I'm a bloodhound. And it says, you solved the case fair and square, but you needed some help along the way. Your sharp instincts and partner guided you. You're not ready for a solo investigation yet. Mm, all right. Yeah, I still don't understand the, the entire case. Uh, but, you know, I basically got the guy in the end. Uh, in terms of dynamic action, I got three out of six. And that 
qualifies me as an agile acrobat. I'm an agile acrobat. Agile, like, you know, sort of flexible and able to jump and move out of the way, a bit like a cat. Cats are quite agile because they're able to jump and, you know, they're very flexible and dynamic and stuff. So I'm an agile acrobat, like a sort of gymnast or something. And it says, your athletic abilities are above par. Oh, okay. Better than sort of above average. That's good. You were probably good at sports when you were a teenager going to school. Yeah, true. I was actually not bad at sport. I used to be a goalkeeper. I was... um, not a bad goalkeeper. I was known uh, by two different names. One was the cat, which is uh, appropriate. They, uh, some of my teammates used to call me the cat. And also I was known as the barrier as well as a goalkeeper. So yeah, true. I was into sport, but I wasn't like the greatest uh, sportsman at school or anything, but I was essentially, I was slightly above average. I was above par. So actually I, I agree with that. Not that this was a test of my genuine athletic abilities, but uh, there it is. Um, All right, then. So that is genuinely the end now. Um, Just one unanswered question. Why did they why did the Russians trash uh, Bovier's uh, uh, house? Was it because they were annoyed about the slightly broad uh, stereotype of Russian people in the story? Maybe they were like, let's go to this house and trash it as a protest against the cliched depiction of Russians in, in stories. Maybe, maybe that was it. Um, I wonder, let me know. Do the, do the detective story yourself. Honestly, it's a lot of fun and it'll be good for your English. Right, so that's it now. That's genuinely the end of this episode. Thanks very much for listening. Speak to you again soon. But for now, goodbye. Bye, 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 bye. Thanks again for listening to Luke's English podcast. For more information, visit teacherluke.co.uk.